Well, hello. Good evening. Who was expecting Rob and you showed up and you're like trying to figure out how to slide out? Or maybe those people slid out during the greeting. No, Dave, you have to stay. <laughs> Brett, you can go. It's fine. <clears throat> if we haven't met, my name is uh, Mark, one of the assistant pastors here. Um, and who's tired tonight? Anyone? Can we just be real? Can we just be real about this? So I don't know if you know, but I I normally teach, or I was teaching on the Sunday night service, which is like 90% college students, anywhere from like 50 to 150 college students during the school year. Um, And I was always kind of in the habit of just being like super legit with them. Um, And I don't know if this freaks you out, but is it weird to hear your pastor say that I like didn't want to come tonight? Like the teaching pastor, like I know a lot of you think, man, these guys just get to go up there and have everyone stare at them and listen to them and critique them and yell at them after. But, but today was just one of those days. I was just all day. I was like, man, I just rather go home. Like, I, and I don't know if you you know my story, but I, I don't work on on staff here. So sometimes I feel bad where I talk about being at work and I forget to mention that. So people that don't know me are like, he's like straight up dissing the church up there right now. Like, so I talk about like my boss. I'm not talking about Rob. Okay, um, but I just. I had one of those, like, not brutal days. Like, I have a, a great day, just an exhausting day, you know. And I, um, my, my v, one of our VPs recently left. I'm a director level, and I've kind of picked up some of his tasks at work. And so I'm feeling kind of the squeeze of that executive level decision, business momentum type thing. Great leadership, love my company, love my CEO who loves Jesus. But just a little added, like, pressure on the day. And then normally on my lunch, I just either keep working or I ride my motorcycle. And um, there's a young man that I've been discipled for years, 22 years. Uh, He's 22 years old. I've discipled him for a couple years. um, And he lost his mother two days ago. Um, He and his two siblings. And I spent my lunch with him. Um, And I was filled by him, but also I mourned with him, you know. And so, you know, and and I'm happy to do it. I'm not saying that, oh, this is why I'm tired, but it it, kind of drains you a little spiritually doing that on your lunch, going back to the office, getting revved up again for afternoon, um, went home, had a call. I do a side consulting job and had a call with a client at six, launched his website at six fifteen. left the house at six forty. Like I'm drained. Um, and so the good news is, is I have nothing for you. <laughs> I'm, I'm serious. And I mean that theologically, I, I mean, I have, I have nothing for you tonight. And so, um, if anything comes out of tonight, it won't be from me. And this is perhaps one of the times I'm most excited because I'm going to learn and I get to almost take a back seat. Like I joke with people, they're like, oh, it was a great sermon. I'm like, what happened? I blacked out, right? And it's like, but I just get to take a back seat. I feel empty. The Bible says you got to be empty so you could be filled. Um, so if you're here tonight, you feel empty, welcome. <laughs> Join the team. If you've never had a pastor tell you you didn't want to come tonight, sorry about that. But I just want to be real with you. Um, but, um, but luckily, I have a passion for what we're going to talk about tonight. Um, and so if you will open up your Bibles, now you can start the video, Linda. <laughs> um, if you can open your Bibles, we're actually going to be in two different places, a lot like last week. But I want to start in Ephesians 5. We'll start in Ephesians 5. I'll kind of give us a recap. Let me pray real fast as you're turning there. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1st, 2nd, Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians. Let me pray. God, just, um, I do ask that, um, that we would all be filled tonight as we come at the end of a work day for most of us, tired, um, but we're here. Um, and we've made the decision to be here because we love you. Uh, we love your word. We love gathering together with fellow believers. We, we love this mini family reunion that takes place in the middle of the week. Um, as gangly of a group as we are, um, we come in to be filled by you, not by a pastor. We come in to be filled by your word, not my words. And so just ask that, that we would sit before the throne of grace, that we would sit before our Father, that we would cross our legs and sit on the rug like in kindergarten, hungry to learn something new today. Um, hungry to have hearts restored, hungry to have a new perspective on something we encounter every single day. And no matter where we're at in life or in relationship, that that we would be ministered to. And so, Jesus, only you can do that. I got nothing tonight. And so, Holy Spirit, I just ask for your ability to teach, for all of us, myself included, I ask that you would score our heart, that you would open up our heart, 
that anything that comes from me would be discarded and forgotten and everything that comes from you would be embedded in our heart forever. So Jesus, we love you, praise you, can't wait to see you again. Amen. My voice is still a little shaky just thinking of my friend. I can't imagine. I mean, I'm 36 and I'm just starting to deal with the idea of possibly a parent going in 10 years or something like that. I can't imagine at 22. So, um, man, making you a pastor makes you a crybaby, I'll tell you that. <laughs> I never cried as much before I became a pastor, I'll tell you that. My wife can attest. You were like ordained and started crying. <laughs> just like, so, I don't know. Anyways, um, as you can see, um, Rob's taking some time off, some much needed time off. And so he's asked me with Sunday nights, taking a hiatus to step in this month and teach on Wednesday nights. And so what we're endeavoring to do is, is walk through a series, um, called on earth as it is in heaven. And we kicked it off last week. And so if you weren't here last week, first of all, they're online. Second of all, I'll do a recap. Third of all, each is an independent sermon. I'll reference the other ones, but you're here. Don't worry about not being here last week. Um, but we are going to be in a sequential series for six weeks, taking a look at things and you're going to see how they build upon each other. Not only in the scriptures that we look at, but in the concepts we're going to start to stack. Um, because you know, I, I always, Dave always sees me back there too. I always have like a note that hits me in the back right before I teach. That's not in my my, my, uh, my official notes, but I wrote this down because many of us are here. Many of us are struggling. We want cultural change. Do we not? Maybe cultural revival, cultural restoration. And if I had to set the tone, I wrote this down. If Christians want to see cultural transformation, it must begin with a transformation of our hearts, a transformation of our marriages, a transformation of our families, a transformation of our work, a transformation of our churches, a transformation of our view of citizenship. And so if you were taking notes, that was just the six-week series that I just laid out. Because to be honest, the world, that we in America, Christians have really made it easy to say, you don't even practice what you preach. You want to you impose that on us? You want to you talk about that at a federal level? You don't even do it. Talk about the sanctity of marriage. You get divorced at the same rate as us. Get off your high horse. And so it, it begins in our hearts. It begins with the individual Christian. And we saw that last week. We took a look at the creation. I won't get ahead of myself, but obviously on earth as it is in heaven comes out of Matthew 6. I'll read you. Jesus is giving us a model prayer. He literally says, don't drone on and on and on in prayer like the hypocrites. And a lot of times we take the Lord's prayer and just kind of drone on and on and on over it. And it kind of just becomes nothing. But he's teaching on the Sermon of the Mount. He says, here's essentially, he says, here's the perfect prayer. He says, here's a perfect prayer. And what he's doing is he's saying, here's a prayer that reflects that you're aligning with God. We know that God listens to the prayers of his children. He is moved. He is stirred by the prayers of his children. There's Bible evidence that he's Influenced? How does that work with his sovereignty? Not sure. I'm going to ask him when I get to heaven, but that he's influenced, that he bends his ear. Though he's sovereign, he knows ahead of time for sure that he, he, he passionately wants to have communication with us just as any good dad wants to have with his kids. And so Jesus says, here's a prayer that aligns, that, is, that, that reflects a heart that, that says, open up heaven, God, I want to know you. I want to see you glorified. And he says, in this manner, I'll just read the first half. It says, in this manner, therefore pray. And he assumes that we pray. We talked about that last week. Both formally, heads down, on our knees before God, and informally, where the Bible says, pray without ceasing. Because if unceasing prayer was always formal, like you wouldn't have to go to work, right? You know what I said? Like I couldn't get anything done. People are like, hey, we got a meeting. I'm praying without ceasing. Wouldn't work. So I would submit to you, there's two buckets. There's formal prayer, which I struggle with a lot. There's unceasing prayer, which I do a lot on the motorcycle, given how you guys drive. And so, so there's, there's the ongoing, there's the, the formal, but he does assume that we pray. Therefore, when you pray in this manner, therefore pray our father, this was a foreign concept. This was a foreign concept in ancient culture. That father is an intimate relationship. Again, talked about it last week. For some of you, that's a, that's a bad connotation. For some of you, it's a great connotation. Regardless of your earthly father, know you have a perfect heavenly father 
who does everything, works all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. So he says, Father, sit at the feet of your dad, a great dad, a perfect dad. He says, our father in heaven, we have special access to the things of heaven now. Brett came up to me afterwards and reminded me that heaven is closer than you think. It's closer than we think. We think it's this far off cosmos and really it's just another dimension that we stand by every day. There's an angelic realm and a demonic realm warring right now. They're not off in some far off galaxy. They're here. And we know that heaven isn't where we float away onto a cloud with a harp for eternity. It says that heaven actually comes back down to earth and earth is restored. It's the antithesis of biblical teaching that heaven is this far off place. That's Gnosticism. Like God can't have anything to do with physical. So he's so far away. It's not the God we serve. He says, our father in heaven. And so we have this access to the heavenly things. He says, hallowed be thy name, which is one of the arcs of the entire Bible that God passionately pursues the name of his himself and his fame and his glory. It repeats over and over and over through the Old Testament, all the way through the new. It talks about he's after for his namesake, for his namesake, for his glory to the praise of his glorious name. He loves you because it serves his glory. He called you because it serves his glory. He saved you because it serves his glory. Not because we were worth it. So he says, our father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come, not our kingdom, not our earthly desires, but your desires, God, your perspectives and precepts, your kingdom come, your will be done, not our will, not what we want to get done, what he wants to get done in and through us. And then he says this on earth as it is in heaven. And so, as we said, this is, this is our passionate prayerful plea that the perspective and the precepts of heaven would be made manifest through us on earth. This is not a Christian belief that says the cross happened thousands of years ago and we're just waiting for revelation. So hunker down and figure it out. Like there's no game plan, like there's no calling. It's like, well, I made the football team, I'm gonna sit on the bench. He wants us on the field. And he wants the heavenly realities, his truth. And I would define truth as God's perception of reality. So God's perception, God's perspective, God's precepts being made manifest on earth in and through us, in and through components of life. And as we're gonna see tonight, in and through marriage. And luckily, as we saw last week, it begins with God. Amen? Anyone else super pumped? The Bible doesn't say, and in the beginning, man? Thank goodness. The whole thing goes south from there, yeah? In the beginning, God. It's Elohim. We know that it's plural, but it's not multiple gods. It's three persons and one God. It's where we get unified diversity. It's where we get the term university. Singular plurality. Three persons, one God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, remember that. It's gonna be something you hear again. And we saw last week that the first manifestation of this heavenly reality is in the individual ourselves. And if you read through Genesis 1, we saw that fruit, herb, grass was all created according to its kind. We saw that creatures, birds, beasts, every living thing was created according to their kind. And then we saw God says in Genesis 1.26, he says, then God said, let us make mankind in what? Our image according to our likeness. Not like the grass and the herbs not like the birds and the fish. They were made according to their kind. Man was made according to my likeness. So we are not God, but we are not animal. We are right in that beautiful tension between God and lower creation, given dominion over lower creation and submission to God in heaven. 
And so that's where we sit is in this beautiful tension between God and lower creation. According to his image, according to his likeness. That's what we know in, in nerd word is, is the doctrine of the Imago Dei in the image of God. And we took a look at that last week. And again, if you want to see cultural transformation, I would be lying to you. And I love what Rob, Rob completely changed my view on, on everything. He said, federal government, all those issues you watch about on news, entirely downstream. I'm like, wait a minute, no, it's not. Like that's the top of the government, downstream. At some point, those were individuals in cities with family and towns trying to get elected in their city and their state to represent and to move. All of that is downstream from the hearts and the marriages and the minds and the workplaces and the churches and the cities and the states. And that cultural transformation begins at that understanding of who God says we are made in his image and in his likeness. And so we're to reflect God on earth. We're to reflect God's precepts and perspectives on earth like a mirror. And we shattered it and it's broken and the light goes off into different ways, but our calling remains the same is to reflect the perfect God through an imperfect being to be healed and restored on earth so that people see that healing and that restoration taking place. And they must come to grips with a God who's living and active in his people. And so mankind is neither God nor animal. We intrinsically have more dignity, value, and worth than lower creation. But mankind intrinsically has more responsibilities as image bearers of God. All, all humans, by the way, all humans, not just Christians. The doctrine of the Imago Dei says humans have all, all humans, more dignity, value, and worth. One of the most profound things my sister ever gave me before I deployed to Iraq with the Marine Corps was a letter that said, I know what you may have to do. And I want you to pray for them and remember that those are sons and daughters and brothers and fathers the same. It doesn't negate that justice and and there's, there's moral violence at times. We don't have to debate the war. We don't have to go back and forth on that. But she reminded me that that was not simply an enemy. It was a human created in the image and the likeness of God. And so all humans have more responsibility. One of the ways that God displays heavenly precepts and perspectives is through us as individuals, as the Imago Dei, as the image stamped with his image and his likeness, reflecting the things that are good and true about God to a world that rejects him. Another way that God displays heavenly precepts on earth is through marriage. And you'll see, I'm just going sequentially through some of these texts. And so this is the very next step after he creates man in his image. But what I want to do is actually, let's, let's do it. You've got your place in Ephesians five. Let's actually flip back to Genesis two. Keep Ephesians five, please move to Genesis two. Let's do a little bit of reading. Because even as I said, it, just being drained, just some reading is going to do me a little good, a lot of good. And so chapter two, he's going to give, some people say, oh, there's two creation accounts and it contradicts. It doesn't. One is giving different details than the first. And so you're going to see some of the same details reiterated in the second. He's giving a little bit more depth, a little bit more um, detail as good authors do. Chapter two says, thus the heavens and the earth and all the host of them were finished. And on the seventh day, God ended his work, which he had done. And by the way, work is going to be one of our themes in coming weeks, which he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it because in it, he rested from all his work. See, some of you thought work was the result of sin. It was actually pre-sin and part of perfection. Okay. So get excited for tomorrow morning. Yay. Right. Okay. This is the history of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day the Lord God made the earth and the heavens before any plant of the field was in the earth before any herb of the field had grown for the Lord God had not caused it to rain and there was no man, gentlemen, you know where your origins come from? God was like, hmm, there's a field. Somebody needs to work that, right? Welcome, okay? He says, there was no man to till the ground. We'll go over that later, two weeks. 
But a mist went up from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. And the Lord God formed man. It's different than all the creation that took place. He formed it. And the word in the original language is, is like a potter with his clay. It's different than speaking everything into existence as he did in chapter one. He said, created the birds. He didn't form the birds. There's something new. There's something different. There's something intimate. It's the continuation of the Imago Dei. The doctrine of the image of God. He does stuff differently with people. And so he says, and the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils, the breath of life and man became a living being. And the Lord God planted a garden eastward of Eden. And there he put man whom he had formed. Now let's jump down to verse 18. And the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. Now, no woman in here is surprised about that. Not a single one. It's just the guys are like, I'm pretty fine by myself. Pretty good actually, actually at doing it, doing nothing by myself. All the ladies are like, he needed help. God agrees with you, ladies. Like that guy needs help. Okay. So God literally said, it's not good. Everything was good. He said, this is not good. It's the first thing in all creation that was not good was that man was by himself. Okay. We're going to wrap some context around that. Don't dwell on it too much. Not much longer than I tended to dwell on it just now. But he says, I will make a helper comparable to him. Ladies, there's your origin. Oh, he has to do everything. Hmm, well, welcome. <laughs> helper. What, the, what this means is that man has been primarily created and that, that woman has been created in cohesion with him to help him. Because again, no surprise, he needs help. Gentlemen, you need to learn that you need help. Ladies, you need to have a restored view of what helping looks like. He says, I will make a helper comparable to him. Now, now if, if you all don't think the Bible's funny, I don't know which one you're reading. But this is pretty hilarious, Okay. Watch what happens. It says, out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. Whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. So Adam gave names to all the cattle, to the birds of the air and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper comparable to him. You had to imagine he was saying when God said, I'm going to find someone for you to be with. And then he started parading animals in front of Adam. He had to be like, please, God, no. Not the aardvarks, right? <laughs> I like to pick on the aardvarks. I think Jesus was giggling when he created those. Okay, just, they're not going to know what to do with the aardvark, right? But he says, I'm going to make you a helper. And then he starts parading animals. And Adam's like, okay, no, call that one cattle, call that one. None of those are compared. Oh, thank goodness, right? This is the continuation of the Imago Dei. Those were all different kinds according to their likeness, not according to God's likeness. According to their kind, we are a different than animals, given dominion over them. And so Adam names them, showing his God now transferring some of that sovereignty, right? Like reflect me in your stewarding and your sovereignty over the portion of creation that I've given you, over the household that I've given you, over the spouse that I've given you. One of the ways that you reflect me is by exercising in a small microscopic way, sovereignty over that which I've given you to steward, God could have named it. He created them for crying out loud. But he gives that to Adam to show God's nature of sovereignty in a small way on earth. Sin hasn't entered the world yet. and He, did, he didn't have to do it. He gave it to him. And there wasn't one found comparable to him. And the Lord God, verse 21, caused a deep sleep. Men have loved naps ever since. He says he caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam. And he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from him, he made into a woman. Now, unlike feminism, which teaches that women are out in front of dumb men, Unlike chauvinism, which says women are back behind because they're dumb women. The picture that God gives us is that woman is from the side, next to him, shoulder to shoulder, walking forward. Not out in front, not behind. From the side, his helper 
comes. Gentlemen, that is the picture that she is by your side. The picture that my wife and I like to use. We've done a fair amount of premarital counseling at the church, mostly with the younger couples. And um, we we took it upon ourselves to write a a six-week curriculum. We spend about two hours a night over six Fridays, and we go through various topics. So you can see how we're just going to scratch the surface tonight. And that, we just feel like, starts to scratch the surface over six weeks. But one of the things that we talk about consistently. I totally lost my train of thought. See, I'm tired. Where was I going with that? It's on the side. I totally lost it. See how human I am right now? <laughs> you see how just frail and beat up. We're just going to move on and I'm going to jump back to it because it says that the rib from which the Lord God had taken the man and made into woman and brought her to the man. And so what we're going to see here actually is the very first wedding procession. He brought her to the man, the very first wedding procession. I'm getting ready to get on a plane on Saturday morning to fly out to Chicago um, for a wedding. And father, father figure, someone is going to, in this case, father is going to what? What traditionally happens? Father does what? Brings the bride to the male. Does she not? Does he not? Look here in Genesis. Where do you think we got that idea? It says he brought her to him. Oh, by the way, helper. I think I got it back. Helper is a divine term. One of the things that we see is that we, we, in, in modern day, we've got a lot of gals that are going into the workforce as my wife works, right? Um, a little maybe drummed up. Guys are drummed up on chauvinism. Girls are drummed up on feminism. In some way, shape, or form, all of us are dealing with that noise that we've been getting beat with for years and years and years. And one of the things we see is this flinch back on this helper as, as this, I'm kind of behind only helping. But I want to remind us, and it says in John 14, 26, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring you and bring your remembrance, remembrance all things that I said to you. Helper is not a derogatory term. My wife likes to remind the gals. It is a divine term. Helper is not derogatory as though you are lesser. It is divine as though you can reflect a nature and a trait that God himself attributes to himself as helper. And so we start to see how this plays out. It says, but for Adam, there was not found a helper comparable to him. Brought her to the man, the first wedding procession. And then Adam actually sings. It's a poem. It's a song. It sounds a little weird because we had to translate it into our language. God brought her to the man. And Adam said, now this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man and he's singing and women have loved a man that sings to him ever since. Some of you women thought you came up with that on your own. No, (laughs) Eve loved it too. Okay, that's why country music exists, really. Okay, right? It says, therefore, look at verse 24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And you see that, again, he's establishing a unique relationship, a unique relationship that pulls you from your mother and father and binds you to your wife. And so it's a unique relationship based on covenant, not biology. Covenant, not biology. How many of you have kids? Myself included, I got three. Okay. I want to lovingly tell you that they didn't get a choice in it. Did you notice that? I didn't like Ethan, Asher, Maisie didn't get to pick their parents. It's not a covenant, right? It's a biological relationship. We're going to understand. We're going to talk about family next week. We're going to talk about that, that God's gift and the stewarding of that gift and children. But you need to know God's under no misconception that the parent child relationship is a covenant. It's something special and unique in and of itself. It's not a covenant it's biology. Spiritually, it's, it's transcendent, of course, but, but it pulls you away from that biological connection from your family and says, I'm now bound first and foremost and primarily to my wife because I've made a covenant before God with her. And that's marriage. And I think I totally skipped over this, actually. I wanted to start by saying 
that as we get into this, we're going to see as Adam and Eve are just now being married. So it's not a bad time to do it. Hebrews 13, four, because some of you are coming from different perspectives. Some of you are coming out of a bad marriage. Some of you have never been in a marriage. Some of you are currently in a bad marriage. Some of you are in a great marriage. Some of you have seen marriages topple in your family. Some of you are dealing with friends that have marriages that are toppling. Some of you are going to weddings like me. Like it seems like every other weekend of new marriages. And again, some of you have great marriages, but no one has a perfect marriage. I sign almost every card at almost every wedding that marriage is not perfect, but marriage is worth it. It's all I write. Marriage isn't perfect, but marriage is worth it. The world gives us plenty of reason to have a low view of marriage. And we've succumbed to it even in the church. But God's word doesn't allow for Christians to have a low view of marriage. Hebrews 13, 4 says, let marriage be held in honor among all. So some of you may have checked out, like, shoot, another marriage sermon. I'm not married. This doesn't apply. First of all, if you may ever be married, this is the great time to learn about marriage, right? Before you get engaged, before you meet that person to learn these things now. But it says to be held in honor among all, the single, the widowed, the divorced, the married. So raise your hand if you're a part of the all. Some people are confused by the question. Okay, cool. Raise your hand if you're breathing. Okay. To be held in honor by all. And so if we're relying on a worldly perspective of marriage, we're going to have a rough road ahead. If you rely on a heavenly perspective of marriage, it won't be perfect, but you will have a redeemed road ahead. And it doesn't mean we worship marriage, but we worship the God who created marriage. I say that a lot about work because if you, if you follow me or know me, I'm obnoxious with talking about work. He'll say, ah, he worships work. And I try to explain to them, look, I have to guard my own heart about that and make sure that I'm not making it an idol, but I don't worship work. I worship the God who created work. And then I tell people, I don't worship work, but I worship with my work. Meeting with people on money too. Look, you, you don't worship money. We don't worship money, but you can worship with your money. It's a tool. It's amoral. It's amoral. So we don't worship marriage. We worship the God who created marriage and he just created it. You just heard it. He creates a helper comparable to him, creating the image and likeness. And by the way, ladies, gentlemen, Christianity, the Bible is the only world religion that declares from the very first chapter, men and women to be equal. Oh, you you believe in submissive? We're going to get on that real quick. But you need to know chapter one, God said both creating the image and likeness of God, co-heirs in the Imago Dei. Only world religion. Only world religion. That says men and women are equal in the sight of God from chapter one. And so we begin and he says, therefore a man shall leave his father, verse 24 again, and mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. You need to know, I I need you to to hear me on this. The first and foremost purpose, purpose of marriage, of sex, of intimacy is oneness. Don't be led to believe that it's procreation by the conservatives in the, in the world. Don't believe that the first and primary is for your happiness and pleasure, which is pushed by the liberals of the world. It's oneness. So, so what we have here is two bodies, both created in the image and the likeness of God, according to his likeness, now declared to operate as one flesh created in God's image and according to his likeness. And so where individuals are called to reflect heavenly precepts to the world, now as one unit, we're called to now declare heavenly precepts to a broken world. And some people say, well, why does it say one? Because we're clearly still two. Probably the same reason it calls God three, but still says he's one. Isn't that amazing? You add kids into the mix. It's like a Trinity. Isn't that amazing? It's like he he knew what he was writing ahead of time is that you would be one cohesive, loving, equally equal in the sight of God, but with different roles, right? What does that reflect? Father, son, and Holy spirit that are equally God yet have separate roles. Did you notice the father didn't die on the cross for your sins? Why not? Is Jesus less of God? Holy Spirit didn't die on a cross. Father sent the son. Son said, I'm going to do the will of the father. Jesus said, it's better for you that I go when I resurrected. I'm going to send you the spirit. Jesus is in heaven right now, by the way. 
The Holy Spirit is now active and living, indwelling in the hearts of believers. Why? Equally God, yes? Functionally submissive with separate roles. Same thing. So when we talk about the roles of the husband and the wife and the children, it's not because they're less valued. It's that they have different roles. If you're like, that's unfair. If God can do it, I'm down. Right? Like if it's good enough for him, I'm down. But that's that heavenly perspective. And it's fascinating. I've done this at work where people ask about that. It's fascinating when you explain this to someone that's never heard it. Oh, you believe in a submissive wife? Yeah. I mean, we worship the submissive Jesus. What do you mean? You, you come to it from submission is bad, right? Let me, let me tell you about God submitting. He's God. Let me tell you about the different roles in the Trinity. And you're offended by the different roles in a family? And so this restored view. So now we're called to operate as one flesh. We're going to get to family next week, but this is the marriage. And so two become one. And I, and I, I want to impress again that the primary purpose of marriage, sex, and intimacy is oneness oneness children are a blessing from the Lord that comes after the gift of oneness with your spouse. And then we go to Ephesians five. If you will turn over to Ephesians five. Some of you aren't surprised we're there. If you've been to a wedding or counseling or heard a pastor talk for more than four minutes, he's probably referenced this at some point. I love actually how Ephesians five starts. It says, therefore be imitators of God, right? Oh, I'm not God. I know, but imitate him. That's your call. I wish I knew God's will for my life. I'd be an imitator of him. It's a good way to start. What's my purpose in life? Imitate God. I could save you a hundred grand on a philosophy degree, right? Be an imitator of God. That's how he starts the chapter. Work your way down all the way to verse 22. So he says right off the bat, he says, therefore be imitators of God as dear children. Verse 22. Here we go. It says, wives submit. Okay. Now let me tell you, I'm a digital marketing guy by trade. I sit as director of marketing and digital commerce at a company in Calabasas. I've been doing digital marketing since 2003. I was the guy on MySpace, copying and pasting company information into MySpace. Most of you don't even remember MySpace. It was the first social media. I've been doing digital marketing forever. And I've been going, I've gone to lots of conferences. And one thing I can tell you is that they'll tell you over and over and over and over and over on your web form, on your landing page, at the bottom of your form, when they fill out all the information, don't have that button say submit because people hate it. I kid you not. They bring that up at conferences. Like change it, like send, or like join. Don't use submit. Submit's a really, really bad word. Say stay away from that. We, we got the same thing. If you're like me, you, you've compartmentalized it to those freaks in the South that protest soldiers' weddings, right? Or funerals. Holding up signs, submit. God hates fags. To repent or perish, Right? Wives submit. I, I've relegated it to, the, but it's a beautiful thing actually. And if it wasn't beautiful, Jesus wouldn't have done it in the garden. He wouldn't have said, not my will, but thy will. He wouldn't have been surrendered, submissive to the father. If it wasn't beautiful intrinsically, we've warped it. We've made it something awful. Gentlemen, we've been responsible for sure. But it does say, ladies, it does say, wives submit to your own husbands, but thank goodness it doesn't stop there. Oh, by the way, first of all, it doesn't say submit to men. You notice that? I love that. People, oh, you believe that women are supposed to submit to men? I'm like, no, not at all. They're like, it says it in the Bible. No, it doesn't. Find it. You tell me. I thought it says submit to husbands. It's different. Oh, it's different? Yeah. One, one is like all men. <laughs> it's very different. And one says your husband. So we have to start there, right? Oh, okay. So submit to your husband. Yeah. Well, well now we agree. That's what the Bible says. Wives, submit to your husbands. And then I usually ask him to... to let me know what happened. What does it say after that? It does. Why, why submit your husband? What does it say after that? As to the Lord. So first of all, you need to know there's not a single guy in the room here we're submitting to. Myself included. My wife will tell you that. She's like, he's not worth it. He screws it up. Not worth it. She is ultimately submitting to the Lord. And if I come out of whack in that totem pole, as we're going to discuss... In the Marine Corps, they call it requesting mast. Like if your sergeant is being abusive, you're like, okay, cool. I'm gonna go talk to staff sergeant then, <laughs> right? You can hang out back there. Staff sergeant doesn't help you. Hey, keep it down at the platoon level. Okay, cool. I'm gonna go find my captain then. And it's requesting mast. I can walk right by that level of authority if it's out of whack. Same thing. Husband gets out of whack, not submitted to the Lord. Pff, 
blow right by him. Head to your pastor. Bring me in. Bring the authorities in if he's abusive. Bring the state in. Bring the church in. It's fine. You're requesting mass. He's out of line for sure. But submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Not submit to men, just to your husband. Ultimately, not to your husband. Ultimately, to the Lord. It says, for husband, for the husband is the head of the wife. Now, gentlemen, it does not say you can be if you want, if you apply, if you pass the test. It says you are. The only question is if you're being a good one. It's not, oh yeah, she's not, you hear us a lot. Like, well, you know, he's not really the head in the marriage. She's kind of wearing the pants and that sort of stuff. No, he is the head. He just might not be a God honoring head. Bible says, for the husband is the head of the wife as also Christ is head of the church and he is the savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, you see the precedent, you see the point he's starting to make. He says, look, I'm teaching you something bigger here that the world needs to see through your marriage. Therefore, just as the church is subject to the Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Now, wives, real fast, a couple notes from my wife's notes. From what she gives to the young ladies that come through our premarital. Submission does not mean... No, yeah, submission does not mean that the wife has no opinion. A good way of putting it, maybe this was the thing I was trying to think of back then with the kids. I can't remember. But a good illustration for you is a husband and a wife in a car. Okay? Husband, driver's seat. One hand on the wheel, one hand holding his wife. Yeah? Her hand, not like holding her. Okay, right? Her hand. Wife, equal. Shoulder to shoulder, rib to rib, headed the same way, holding hands, okay? Doesn't have her hand on the wheel, but has every ability to say, we should get off here. The husband has every right to say, I, that's, I don't think that's the right decision. Talk about it back and forth. Now, here's one of the freeing things. So my wife tells the gals, she says, look, I, I, think we should get off, I think we should get off here. It's actually shorter. He says, no way. The next exit, way shorter. So, okay. Giving her opinion this moment. All right, I'll submit. Now, if he's like, fine, whatever, and he just gets off here and she's wrong, guess who's responsible? Him. Right? Now, if they don't get off, it's like, no, oh, no, not Canaan, we're going Lost Virginus. He gets off at Lost Virginus, heads down, and it's shorter. It is. Guess who gets the glory? Jesus. Now, if he's right, or he's wrong, I should say he's wrong, who bears responsibility? The husband. She's released from the responsibility because God says he's the head. It doesn't mean she can't help influence those decisions, but when he makes a decision, win, lose, or draw, he bears the responsibility of it. My wife will tell you Submission in that moment is freeing to her because God came down in the garden. You ever notice this? Eve walks up. Anyone get into the she ate first? Here, Adam, right? And like the meathead, he's like, okay. <laughs> Said he was standing there watching, right? Not doing what he was supposed to, which is a picture of the American male, if, you, if there was one, Okay. So she eats first. Anyone denying she ate first? I'll argue they, are, they sinned at the same time. She did what she wasn't supposed to do. He didn't do what he was supposed to do, which was protect her. But she ate first, right? <laughs> Hands it off to Adam. God comes down. What does he say? Where's Adam? Where's Adam? Why didn't he go to, why didn't he go to eat first? She's in the head of that relationship. So where's Adam? By the way, God knew where he was. This wasn't hide and seek. He wanted him to come out. He wanted him to repent. Okay. Adam's like, I'm getting away with it. He has no idea. <laughs> Hiding behind an aardvark or something, right? Like, he comes down and he goes, where's Adam? Hey, Eve. Hey, nice to see you. Where's Adam? And he goes, Adam, where are you? Because men hide. Oh, I'm not responsible. And what does Adam do? Blames it, right? On her. Hey, God, everything was fine until she showed up. 
He literally says that. Again, I don't know what Bible you're reading. It's way more interesting than you think. He's like, hey, yo, everything was cool, God. Like, we were just, you and me, homie, like, we were fellowshipping. And then she came. He says that. You think I'm joking? He literally said, hey, yo, until she came, it was fine. He should, but but God, doesn't, God doesn't see it that way. He says, you were her responsibility. You're the head. You watched her. And you're ducking your responsibility. And so do a lot of men today. He says, hey, where are you? Where are you in your marriages? There's an epidemic across the country. Luckily, not at this church, but across the country. Husbands roll up on football Sunday, drop the wife and kids off, head right back home. God says, where are you? You're not head of your marriage. You are head. You're just not being a good head. So submission is not that the wife has no opinion. This doesn't mean that you're not as smart as your husband. By the way, every lady take a deep breath. Oh, thank goodness. I thought I had to say he was smarter than me. Two of my closest friends are both lawyers. She loves to remind him that she got a better score than him on the bar. Dear believers, love Jesus, fully submitted to that guy. She's like, hey, but guess what? (laughs) State of California says I'm smarter, (laughs) right? And that's fine. He's not miffed by it. It's not an attack on his headship. She beat him at a test. Good on you. I know doctors that are married to people who work at gas stations. I don't care. doesn't matter. doesn't mean he's not the head. Oh, she's smarter. Does more school. My wife has a master's degree. I just have a bachelor's. I'm not like, well, shoot, now you're ahead. You know, higher degree, smarter. That's not how it works. doesn't mean that she's not as smart as a husband. Ladies, it doesn't mean that you accept abuse. That's not what submission is. Again, he's out of line. God sets up these protective layers over the wife as the husband, over the husband as the church leadership, the elders and the pastors, over the church leadership as local and state law enforcement, over the state and law enforcement, there's federal, there's government. These are layers of protection for people, all the way back down to children. You, you, you want to you wanna come after my kids? You have two layers to get through, at least, if I don't call in reinforcements. You want to come after my, my wife? Come through me. Come through me then. I'm set up as a protective layer. It's how it's supposed to be. And, and, and above the husband, if, he, if he's out of line, if he's done this and he's abusive, keep it quiet. You need to submit. No, go to your pastor, ladies. Go to law enforcement. It doesn't mean you neglect justice. You can forgive him on his way to the cell, on his way to jail. It doesn't mean that you accept abuse. That's not what submission is. Submission does mean that a wife respects her husband even when she disagrees ultimately with the decision knowing that he will bear the responsibility. It doesn't mean that she can't influence that. But right or wrong, he bears the responsibility for that final decision. Gentlemen, it's a responsibility for us. Ladies, I pray it's a relief for you. Submission does mean that a wife helps her husband. It says it right there in the first chapter. It says, you're a helper. Yeah, he can't, she can't help make any decisions. He called you a helper, Right? but you're not held responsible for the outcome ultimately. You're responsible for your sin, ladies, but you're not responsible for those decisions that you're made as one flesh. He is the head is, right? Like I decide to go try to do a trick on a skateboard and break my foot. My foot's not to blame, my brain is, yeah? My head is. My head made that ultimate decision and my foot paid the price. When those bad decisions happen, It is the husband's responsibility because of the ramifications it has for the family. And he's set up to help the family flourish so that she can flourish, the children can flourish. My life's goal is to create an environment that loves Jesus and allows my wife and my children to flourish and love Jesus. That's my goal. And submission does mean that a wife honors God by honoring her husband. Titus 2, 4 through 5, you've heard of the Titus 2 woman. It says, train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. See, some of you ladies are like, okay, good, so all the blame is on him. But you need to know your responsibility in that submission could mean the reviling of God's word. And so even if he's making what you believe to be the wrong decision, the submission to it aligns that picture of unity before a broken world and reflects a heavenly truth to a broken world. And so ladies, that the word of God may not be 
reviled wives. You are to submit to your husband. You are to love your husband. You're to come alongside your husband as a helpmate. You're to respect your husband. My wife's note says, I literally just copied and pasted it. She's smarter at being a girl than I am. And so it says, don't strive to be a good wife by the world's standards. Instead, try to strive to be a godly wife in contrast to what the world says. This is one of the ways that God's heavenly precepts and perspectives are manifest on earth. And so Ephesians 5, again, says the husband, wives, submit to your own husbands. Now, verse 25, Ephesians 5, 25 says, husbands. I always ask that question too. Like, oh, you believe women should submit to what? Men? No, to their husband. Oh, so a woman should submit to the husband? Yeah, what's the husband supposed to do? They can never get that verse for some reason. I'm like, it's like two verses away. If you're gonna throw the Bible at me, give me like three verses next time, please. What does it say the husband's supposed to do? Beat on their wives? Be complete jerks to their wives? Do whatever they want? Wife has to stay anyways? Go out on boys' night? Forget what she says? I don't need no help? What does the Bible say? It says, husbands, love your wives. Oh, and thank goodness it didn't leave it up to us to decide what that looks like. You notice that? It's the second half. It says, love your wives. Guys like, I do love her. I just don't want to be around her. I want to have guys night every Friday, regardless of what my wife and kids want. Right? It says, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of the water by the word. Now, it could be perhaps one of the most ironic understandings in the Bible that the perfect picture of a husband was a single guy. Anyone notice that? Jesus died a 33-year-old virgin. It's one of his many miracles. Anyone notice that? Three people are offended by the joke. The others don't know how to do that. They say, love your wives like Jesus. Love the church. Says, gentlemen, you want a perfect picture of a husband? Think of who you brought in tonight. If I said, look, what kind of husband do you want to be like? How many of us, be honest, we're like Jesus. Definitely Jesus. You're like, no, he wasn't even married. Maybe like my dad. No, my dad kind of screwed up. Maybe a pastor. I don't know. I tell some people like, hey, I got to learn some stuff about marriage. I'm getting married. I'm like, have you studied Jesus? What what about? You're not going to know anything about being a husband until you've studied the life and the work of Jesus. What do you mean? He wasn't married. Because what we call the bridal paradigm, as it's going to say, is the point. And so maybe actually, let's just read, then I'll go into my notes. It says, husband, love love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of the water by the word that he might present to her, he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having a spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself for no one ever hated his own flesh. Certainly not guys. Okay. Guys are way too comfortable with their own flesh. You ever been to a gym locker room? Okay. I mean, I'm confident, not that confident. Okay. Right. He says, look, you don't hate your own body. And so he says, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as the Lord does the church. For we are the members of his body, of his flesh and of his bones. And then he quotes Genesis 2. He says, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery. He says, I'm not talking literally. Jesus wasn't married. He's married to the body of Christ. And from that, you can learn everything you need in your marriage. He says, this is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. So people are like, what does a good marriage look like? Jesus pursuing his church. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular, so love his own wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. And so perhaps it's ironic that the perfect husband was unmarried in the person and the work of Jesus And Jesus loved her by being tough for her and tender with her. Gentlemen, did you hear what I said? Jesus loved his bride, the church, by being tough for her and being tender with her. He was not tough with her. He was tough for her and tender with her. You say, where? Like perhaps when he walked into his bride, the church, and they set up shop and were swindling people out of their income and he flipped tables. He made a whip. And you're like, he was nonviolent. He didn't actually hit him. 
right. He just stood in the corner and said, I might do something, right? He drove them out. It's one of the instances of his earthly ministry. We see Jesus got angry. Why was he angry? Because they were offending his bride. And so he was tough for her. Another instance, they brought a man with a withered hand. This is his bride. A a child, Imago Dei. And they brought this, who knows? You know kids are mean. They weren't nice in the first century. This guy was ostracized his whole life. He got invited on no play dates. He was outside the town. They thought he was a sinner by nature. He had this crippled hand. Lord knows how tough it was back then to be crippled and they brought it to him. It says the Pharisees were in the front row looking to see if he would restore him. And it says that Jesus looked at him and he was angry. Some of you don't know that Jesus. I take rest in that Jesus that got angry when the religious people tried to stop a healing. And he said, my wife wants to be healed and you're trying to get religious on me. You're trying to get doctrinal on me. You're trying to apply the law on me. And he says, he looked at them with anger and then he healed him. I imagine he kept his eyes on a ferret. No, he didn't. He's like, I'm going to heal this guy anyway. No, he didn't. He cared for that person. Did he not? He was tough for her, but he was always tender with her. And he got down on his feet and he washed, he washed their feet, he, he cared and nurtured them. He brought children to them. He was every bit as tender with her as he was tough for her, gentlemen. That's how you begin to see what a perfect husband looks like. You study the person in the work of Jesus. 5% on my iPad, don't know where it's going to go. He protected, he provided. You don't want me to start going ad lib on this stuff. He says he protected, he provided, and was her priest. First Timothy 5, 8, we're going to talk a little bit more about this when it comes to work says, but if any man does not provide for his relatives and especially for the members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Look, we're not legalistic. If there is some reason you can't work, whether it's legal, whether it's physical, whether it's handicapped, we get it. But I warn women all the time of a guy who says, I'm not going to work. says he's denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So Mike, if you're offended with that, take it up with God, not me. Amen. First Peter three, seven says, likewise, husbands live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as a weaker vessel, vessel like pottery. Have you ever noticed that the really, really expensive ones aren't like super thick? They're fragile, right? They're beautiful. They're elegant. There's something different about them. They were fashioned with, with, with a little bit more care. They're, they're weaker. You could tap a dime on that thing and probably break that vase. Not like the the clunky thing you put your succulent in, right? That's the picture of the guy, by the way. You're the black pot that's about this thick, okay? Just nothing's gonna break me. We know, okay? But here's this vessel, beautiful and thin and, and, and weaker and to be honest, probably a little more expensive than you guys, okay, right? As the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you in the grace of life, heirs, co heirs so that your prayers may not be hindered. It's one of the few places in the Bible. God says, I'm not going to listen to you if you don't take me seriously on this. Husbands, love your wife, Colossians 3.19, and do not be harsh with them. Husbands are to assume the headship in marriage, to love their wives above others, to cherish their wives, to treat their wives with consideration and tenderness, to honor their wives, to provide for their wives, to protect their wives physically, spiritually, emotionally, to lead and shepherd their wives, and to be active in the raising of children with their wives. This is one of the ways that God's heavenly precepts and perspectives are manifest on earth. And real fast, I want to close with a couple things. So marriage is not and is statements. Marriage is not merely a contract as we've seen, but a covenant. Anyone that's done business knows that a contract is simply an exit plan. Yeah? Yeah, If you do this, we're out. If you don't sell by this, we're done. If you break this warranty, too bad. A contract is an exit plan. A covenant is a connection plan. So it's not merely a contract, but a covenant. It's not easy to dissolve. Look, you can go in the newspaper and see $49 divorces. You can cut a contract, that's fine. But you need to know that marriage is deeply intertwined and interwoven into the who we are. And as much as we like to pretend that we can just disengage and be fine, we're not. Part of our flesh has been ripped from us. 
So it's not easily dissolved, but deeply intertwined. It's not easy at times. It's hard. And if you become accustomed to pursuing easiness in life, I'm telling you, you're going to be let down in marriage. Jesus' pursuit of his church was not easy. Amen? Anyone read the book of Hosea, Old Testament? Prophet? Told by God to marry a prostitute? And what did she do? You should read that this week. Seriously, read Hosea. I think it was the first Old Testament book I ever taught. Amazing. You need to know that Gomer, the wife, the prostitute, is a picture of the church. I loved teaching it to the college students. Every week I got to call him a prostitute for like weeks. Right? Just welcome prostitutes. Okay, right? Gomer. And Jesus is the greater Hosea. And she ran and he pursued and she ran and he pursued and she ran and he pursued and she got herself enslaved and put up for sale. And he walked into a public square, a man of God, a prophet and said, I'll buy her. Like, really? She's disgusting. She's been with every guy in this town. You can't go to the mall without dudes staring like, yo, I've been there too. And he's like, yep, I'll take her. Read the book of Hosea. It's about Jesus pursuing his people. You run. You need to know it's not like all the other gods of the false religions. Say, you run, you better get back. You run to God, you better figure out your way back. We run from God, we turn around, he's right there. It's Jesus saying, I've never left. It's a God that pursues his people. It wasn't easy. It didn't feel good. That's my next point. It's not primarily about feelings. Marriage is primarily about decisions. Now, that's not no romantic, right? How, how's romance done for us in America, though? It's not romantic. Look, I get the fluttery feelings. I saw my wife like, yes, I'm going to Tahiti with her, okay? Right? And we did, okay? Uh, don't get me wrong. Beautiful, amazing. God, God does that for a reason. There is attraction, but you need to know that doesn't fade. It changes. All the married people, anyone over like four years, like, yep. All the young people are like, I don't, I don't, what do you mean? I don't get it. Dealing with lust, love is deeper. It's not primarily about feelings, it's about decisions. I'll give you one glaring example. Didn't feel good. Ultimate act of love, yes? Jesus wasn't like, you know what, this feels pretty great. I'm going to hang here. No pun intended. I'm just going to hang out because this feels good. He said at times, that's what marriage is going to be like. It's gonna be like I'm going to decide to stay here. I'm going to wake up and decide to love her today. I'm going to wake up and decide to love him today. My wife will tell you the same. Some just wakes up. It's like, I got to decide that one today. It's not primarily about feelings. It's primarily about a decision to love. And it's not 50, 50. It's the greatest lie. I believe in the, in the culture is that marriage is a 50, 50 arrangement. Let me tell you why that doesn't work. You will never agree on the halfway line. It's like dodgeball. You'll run back and forth, but none of you will stand on it. Come on, dodgeball analogy, that was pretty good, right? Come on. All the 80s kids are like, yeah, right? You'll never agree on what half line. No, look, this is halfway. She's like, not really. The trash is not way over there. It's way over here. That's 50. You come over here on the trash. Hold on, hold on. Uh, Look, I was at work all day. Therefore, I don't have to do nothing the rest of the day. She's like, no, we have kids. You need to meet me over here. You're never going to agree on that line. I need you to know that that Jesus never said, yo, meet me halfway and we'll fix this whole thing. As John referenced Romans 5 says, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, we were at zero. That while we were yet sinners, we didn't have our eyes on him. We weren't focused on him. We weren't thinking about him. We weren't caring about him. We weren't worshiping him. We were focused on our sin. And he came and said, I'll die for them. Marriage is not a 50-50 arrangement that says you meet me halfway and we'll do this. Marriage is a picture of a heaven reality that both parties lay their lives down 100-100. And just as Jesus said, I'll give you everything. I will bleed out 100% percent while you're over there sinning I will be slaughtered for you and he was slaughtered and we come running and we say Jesus you laid down your life I didn't even care about you I didn't know you I didn't thank you but I'm here now and he says 
It's your turn. I've laid down my life 100%. And then he says, and I ask you to do the same. Give your life to me fully, not so that you will be saved. I accomplish that, but because you've been saved. And so we lay down our lives in submission to him, the head of the church, to reflect heavenly precepts and perspectives manifesting themselves on the earth, in our hearts, and through our marriage so that people would see a living God on earth as it is in heaven. Amen? All right, let's pray. Jesus, thank you. Holy Spirit, specifically, thank you for um, working in in the hearts of your people, myself included. I pray for a, a restored perspective tonight that, that none of this would bring condemnation and shame about the past, but it would bring a renewed understanding that we would all, regardless of history, regardless of current circumstance, that we would hold up marriage in honor because you created it and it's good and it can reflect you. And for those of us that are married or going into marriage, may one day be married, would you lay the foundation of your words so that we can stand on the rock? The world gives us plenty of sand, but these truths that you give us create a firm foundation upon which our marriages can stand, not perfect, but being perfected in them. And so Jesus, I pray for the married couples, I pray for the single people, I pray for the divorced, I pray for the widowed, I pray for the engaged, that we would look out and we would see an opportunity through marriage to reflect who you are to those who don't yet know you. So Jesus, do that work in the hearts of your people. Holy Spirit, thank you for authoring the word. Thank you for being living and breathing and indwelling in us and so that we can be saturated with your word and remember it. Would you remind us of these precepts as we go out? Would this not end tonight? Would this just begin tonight? God, not for our glory, but for yours alone. Amen.